Hey y'all, it's your storyteller, and I am glad to be back. And y'all, welcome back to the Mockingbirds, Breedings from the Damned. I've been out for about a week, week and a half. Uh, I had some shit go down in my life, and I had to go uh, get my brain reset and rebooted. But I am healthy and happy now. So... I know you don't want to hear me talk anymore, so let's get to the reading. We are on Chapter 7 of 1984 by George Orwell. Chapter 7 If there is hope, Winston wrote, it lies with the proles. If there is hope, it must lie in the proles, because only there, in those swarming, disregarded masses, 85% of the population of Oceana could the force be to destroy the party ever be generated. The party could not be overthrown from within. Its enemies, if had any enemies, had no way of coming together or even identifying one from one another. Even if legendary Big Brotherhood existed, and it just possibly it might, It was inconceivable that its members would ever assemble in larger numbers than twos and threes. Rebellion meant to look in the eyes. An inflection of the voice at most, an occasional whispered word, but the proles. If only they would somehow become conscious of their own strength, we would need not need. We would have no need to conspire. They only need to rise up and shake themselves like a horse shaking off flies. If they choose, they could blow the party to pieces tomorrow morning, surely sooner. Or later, it must occur to them to do it. And yet, he remembered how he had once been walking down a crowded street when a tremendous shout of a hundred voices, women's voices, had burst from a side street a little way ahead. It was a great formable cry of anger and despair, a loud, deep, oh, that went on humming like a reverberation of a bell. His heart leapt. It started, he thought, a riot. The pearls are breaking loose at last. When he reached the spot, it was to see a mob, two or three hundred women, crowding around the stalls of a market, with faces as tragic as they had been the doomed passengers on a sinking ship. But at this moment, the general despair broke out into the multitude of individual quarrels. It appeared that one of the stalls had been selling tin saucepans. They were wretched, flimsy things. But cooking pots of any kind were always difficult to get. Now the supply had unexpectedly been given out. The successful women bumped and jostled by the rest, were trying to make off with the saucepans while dozens others clamored around the stall, accusing the stallkeeper of favoritism and having more saucepans somewhere in reserve. There was a fresh burst of yells, two bloated women, one of them coming at her, her hair coming down. One of them had got a hold of the same saucepan. They were trying to tear it out of each other's hands. For a moment, they were both tugging and the handle came off. Winston watched it disgustedly, and yet, just for a moment, 
what almost frightening power had sounded from that cry, only a hundred, few hundred throats. Why? They could never shout like that, about anything that mattered. He wrote, Until they become conscious, they will never rebel. And until they rebelled, they can never become conscious. That, he reflected, might have been the, a transcript from one of the party textbooks. The party claimed, of course, to have liberated the proles from bondage before the revolution. They had been hideously oppressed by the capitalists and had been starved and flogged. Women been forced to work in coal mines. Women still did work in coal mines, as a matter of fact. Children had been sold into factories at the age of six. But simultaneously, true to the principles of doublethink, the party taught that the proles were natural inferiors and who must be kept in subjection like animals by the application of a few simple rules. In reality, very little was known about the proles. It was not necessary to know much. As long as they continued to work and breed, their their other activities were without importance. Left to themselves like cattle, they turned loose upon the plains of Argentina, and they had reverted back to the style that appeared to be natural to them, sort of an ancestral pattern. They were born, they grew up in the gutters, they went to work at twelve, they passed through a brief blossoming period of beauty and sexual desire, they married at twenty, they were middle-aged at thirty, and they died, for the most part, at sixty. Heavy physical work, the care of home and children, petty quarrels with neighbors, films, football, beer, and above all, gambling, filled up the horizon of their minds. To keep them in control was not difficult. Few agents of the thought police moved among them, spreading false rumors, marking down and eliminating the few individuals who were judged capable of becoming dangerous. But no attempt to was made to indoctrinate them into the ideology of the party. Sorry, y'all. It was not desirable that the feelings of the proles should have such strong political uh, feelings. Oh, sorry, I'm trying to suppress his sneeze, y'all. Okay. Sorry. I should totally cut that out, but you know what? I don't have I don't have the, the energy to do it, so that was me trying to uh not sneeze. Okay. Back to the book. All that was required of them was a primitive patriotism that could be appealed whenever it was necessary to make them accept uh, longer working hours and shorter rations. When they became discontented, as they sometimes did, their discontent led to nowhere because being without general ideas, they could only focus it on petty grievances. The larger evils inevitably escaped their notice. The great majority of proles did not have a telescreen in their homes. Even the civil police interfered with them very little. 
There was a vast amount of criminality in London, and a whole world within a world of thieves, bandits, prostitutes, drug peddlers, and racketeers of every description. But since it all happened among the Poles themselves, they were of no importance. All in all, questions of morals they allowed to follow their ancestral code. Sexual puritism of the party was not imposed upon them. Promiscuity went unpunished. Divorce was permitted. For that matter, even religious worship would have been permitted if the proles had shown any sign of needing or warning it. They were beneath suspicion. As the party slogan says, put it, proles and animals are free. Winston reached down and cautiously scratched his varicose ulcer. It had begun itching again. The thing you invariably came back to was the impossibility of knowing what life was before the revolution had really been like. He took out a copy. He took out of the drawer a copy of a children's history textbook, which he had borrowed from Mrs. Parsons, and began copying a passage into the diary. In the old days, it ran, before the glorious revolution, London was not the beautiful city we know today. It was a dark, dirty, miserable place where hardly anybody had enough to eat and there were hundreds and thousands of poor people with no boots on their feet and not even a roof to sleep under. Children no older than you are had to work twelve hours a day for cruel masters who flogged them with whips if they worked too slowly and fed them nothing but stale bread crusts and water. But among all of this terrible party, there were just a few great, big, beautiful houses that were lived in by rich men and who had as many as 30 servants to look after them. These rich men were called capitalists. They were fat, ugly men with wicked faces like the one you see on the picture on the opposite page. You can see that dressed in a long black coat, which is called a frock coat, and a queer shiny hat shaped like a stovepipe which was called a top hat. This was the uniform of the capitalists, and no one else was allowed to wear it. The capitalists owned everything in the world and everyone who was their slave. They owned the land, all the houses, all the factories, and all the money. And if you disobeyed them, they could throw you into prison, or they could take your job away and starve you to death. When the ordinary person spoke to a capitalist, he had to cringe and bow to him. He had to take his cap and address him as sir. The chief of all capitalists was called the king, and, but he knew the rest of the catalog. There would be mention of bishops and their slaw on sleeves and judges and their ermine robes and the pillory, the stocks, the treadmill, the cat-o-nine uh, chails the Lord Mayor's banquet and the practice of kissing the Pope's toe. There was also something called Je, Je Prima Noctis, which probably should not be mentioned in a textbook. It was the law by which every capitalist had the right to sleep with any woman working in one of his factories. How could you tell how much of it was lies? 
It might be true that the average human being was better off now than it had been before the revolution. The only evidence to the contrary was mute protest in your own bones, and the instinctive feeling conditions you lived in were intolerable, and that at some other time they must have been different. It struck him the truly characteristic thing about modern life was not its cruelty or its insecurity, but simply its bareness, its dinginess, its listlessness. Life, if you looked about you, bore no resemblance of, to the lives that streamed out of the telescreens. Even if, even, but even to the ideals of the party was trying to achieve great areas of it, even for a party member, were neutral and non-political. The, the matter of slogging through dreary jobs, fighting for a place on the tube, darning out a worn-out sock, cadging a saccharine tablet, saving a cigarette end. The ideal setup by the party was something huge, terrible, and glittering. A world of steel and concrete a monstrous machines of terrifying weapons, a nation of warriors and fanatics, marching forward in perfect unity, all thinking the same thoughts and shouting the same slogans, perpetually working, fighting, triumphing, persecuting, 300 million people all with the same face. The reality was decaying. Dingy cities where underfed people shuffled to and fro in leaky shoes and patched up 19th century houses that smelled of cabbage and bad laboratories. He seemed to see a vision of London, vast and ruinous, a city of a million dustbins, and mixed up with the picture of Mrs. Parsons, a woman with a lined face and wispy hair, fiddling helplessly with a blocked waste pipe. He reached down and scratched his ankle again. Day and night, the telescreens bruised your ear with statistics proving that people today had more food, more clothes, better houses, better recreations, that they lived longer, worked shorter hours, were bigger, healthier, stronger, happier, and more intelligent, better educated and the people than the people 50 years ago. Not a word of it could ever be proved or disapproved. The party claimed, for example, for today, 40% 40 of adult proles were literate. Before the revolution, it was said, it had been only 15%. The party claimed the infant mortality rate was now only 160 per, per thousand, whereas before the revolution, it had been 300. And so it went on. It was like a single equation with two unknowns. It might as well be that literally every word in the history books, even the ones that accepted without question, was pure fantasy. For all he knew, there might never have been a law such as the Jus Permanoctis, or any other creature such as a capitalist, or any other garment such as a top hat. Everything faded into mist. The past was erased, the erasure was forgotten, the lie became true. After the event, that's what counted. That's what was concrete and unmistakable evidence of the act of falsification. 
It had been held between his fingers for as long as 30 seconds in 1973. It must have been, at any rate, it was about the time when he and Catherine parted. But the, but really, Revelin date was seven or eight years ago. The story began in the middle 60s, a period of great purges, when original leaders of the revolution were wiped out once and for all. By 1970, none of them existed. None of them were left, except Big Brother himself. All the rest had time, had been exposed as traitors, counter-revolutionaries. Goldstein had fled and was hiding, and no one knew where. And the others, they just, a few just simply disappeared, while the majority had been executed under spectacular public trials, at which they were made to be confess made confession of their crimes. Among the last survivors were three men named Jay, uh, Jones, Arison, and Rutherford. It must have been 1965. These three had been arrested, and as often happened, they had vanished for a year or more, and then so that one did not know if they were dead or alive, and then suddenly be brought back forth to incriminate themselves in the usual way. They confessed to intelligence that they were the enemy. At the date, too, the enemy was Eurasia. Embezzlement of public funds, the murder of various trusted party members, intrigues against the leadership of Big Brother, which had started long before the revolution happened. Acts of sabotage causing the death of hundreds of thousands of people. After confessing to these, they had... These things they had been pardoned, reinstated into the party, and given posts, which in fact were signatures, but sounded important. All in all had been written long, abject articles in the Times, analyzing the reasons for their defection and promising to make amends. Sometime after their release, Winston... I had actually seen all three of them in the Chestnut Tree Cafe. He remembered a sort of terrified fascination he had with which he had watched them out of the corner of his eye. These were men far older than himself, relics of an ancient world, almost the last great figures left over from the heroic early days of the party. The glamour of the underworld underground struggle and the Civil War still faintly clung to them. He had the feeling, though already the time facts and dates growing blurry, that he had known their names years ago, that they had known that, that of Big Brother. But they also were outlaws, enemies, and untouchables, doomed with the absolute certainty to execution within a year or two. No one who once fallen into the hands of the thought police ever escaped in the end, their corpses waiting to be sent back to the grave. There was no one at any of the tables nearest to them. It was not wise even to be seen in the neighborhood of such people. They were sitting in silence before their glasses of gin, flavored with cloves, 
which is the specialty of the cafe. One of the three. It was Rutherford whose appearance had made who had most impressed Winston. Rutherford had been a famous caricaturist whose brutal cartoons had helped inflame popular opinion before and during the revolution. Even now, at a long intervals, his cartoons were appearing in the Times. They simply were an imitation of his earlier manner, curiously lifeless and unconvincing. Always they were rehashing of ancient times, slum tenements, starving children, battle, street battles and capitalists on top hats. Even on the barricades of the capitalists, it still seemed to cling to their top hats as an endless hopeless effort to get back into the past. He was a monstrous man with a mane of greasy gray hair. His lips pouched and seamed with protuberant lips. At once, at one time, he must have been immensely strong. Now his great body was sagging, slopping, bulging, falling away in every direction. He seemed to be breaking up before everyone's eyes, like a mountain crumbling. It was the lonely hour of fifteen. Winston could not remember now how he had come upon the cafe at such a time. The place was almost empty. A tinny music was trickling from the telescreens. The three men sat on their corner, almost motionless, never speaking. Uncommanded, the waiter brought fresh glasses of gin. There was a chessboard on the table beside them with the pieces set out, but no game started. And then, for perhaps a half a minute, something happened to the telescreens. The tune that was playing changed. The tone of the music changed, too. It came in two, but it was something hard to describe. It was peculiar and cracked, braying, jeering note. In his mind, Winston called it a yellow note. And then a voice from the telescreen was singing. Under the spreading chestnut tree, I sold you, and you sold me. There lie they, and there lie we, under the spreading chestnut tree. The three men never stirred, but when Winston glanced again at Rutherford's ruinous face, he saw that his eyes were full of tears, and first he noticed with kind, with a kind of inward shredder, that both Erickson Aronson and Rutherford had broken noses. A little later, all three were rearrested. It appeared that they had engaged in a fresh conspiracy from the very moment of their release. Second trial, where they confessed to all of their old crimes all over again, with a whole new string of new ones. They were executed, and their fate recorded upon the party's histories a warning, a warning to posterity. About five years after this, in 1973, Winston was unrolling a wad of documents which had just flopped out of the pneumatic tube on his desk. He came on a fragment of paper, which had evidently been slipped in among the others and then forgotten. An instant, he flattened his CD and saw its, in, saw its significance. It was a half-torn 
out page of the Times about 10 years earlier at the top half of the page, so it included the date, and it contained a photograph of the delegates of some party function in New York. Prominent in the middle of the group were Jones, Aronson, and Rutherford. There were no mistaking them. In any case, their names were in the caption on the bottom. The point was that both trials of all three men had confessed on that day they had been on Eurasian soil. They had flown from secret airfield in Canada in a rendezvous somewhere in Siberia and conferred with members of the Eurasian general staff to whom they betrayed important military secrets. That date had struck in Winston's memory because it chanced to be Midsummer Day. But the whole story must have been on record in countless places as well. There was only one possible conclusion. The confessions were lies. Of course, this was not in itself a discovery. Even at this time, Winston had not imagined that the people being wiped out in the purges actually committed the crimes they were accused of. But this was concrete evidence. It was a fragment of the abolished past. It was a fossil bone which turns up in the wrong stratum and destroys a whole geological theory. It was blown. It was enough to blow the whole party to atoms if in some way it could have been published to the world and its significance made known. He had gone straight on working. As soon as he saw what the photograph was and what it meant, covered it up with another sheet of paper. Unluckily, he unrolled it, and it has been its it, it had been upside down from the point of view of the telescreens. He took out his scribbling pad on his knee and pushed his chair put past his chair so he could look get as far away from the telescreens as possible. To keep your face expressionless was not difficult. Even your breathing could be controlled with an effort, but you could not control the beating of your heart, and the telescreen was quite delicate enough to pick it up. He let what he judged to be ten seconds go by, tormented all the while the fear that some accident, some draught blowing across his desk, for instance, would betray him, and then, without uncovering it again, he dropped the photograph into the memory hole with some waste papers and within another minute, perhaps, it would have crumbled to ashes. That was 10, 11 years ago? Today, probably, he would have kept the photograph. It was a curious, that fact held within his fingers that made him to make a difference, even now. When the photograph itself, as well as the event it recorded, was only memory, was the party's hold upon the past less strong, he wondered, because a piece of evidence which no longer existed, which existed no longer had once existed? But today, supposing it would be somehow resurrected from the ashes, the photograph might be, might not be evidence. Already at the time he was making his discovery, Oceania was no longer at war with Eurasia, and it must have been agents with East Asia that had the three dead men, the three dead men had betrayed their country. Since there had been no other changes, 
two, three, he could not remember how many. Very likely the confessions had been rewritten and rewritten and rewritten until the original facts and dates no longer had the smallest significance. The past could not only be changed, but changed continuously. What most affected him was the sense the clear sense of a nightmare that he was never that he had never clearly understood why the huge imposture had would have been undertaken. The immediate advantages of falsifying the past were obvious, but the motive was mysterious. He took his pen again and wrote, I understand how, but I do not understand why. He wondered, as if he had many times wondered before, whether himself a lunatic. Perhaps a lunatic was a simply minority of one. At once he had been, it had been a sign of madness to believe that the earth goes around the sun. Today, to believe the past is unalterable. At one time, it had been a sign of madness to believe that the earth goes around the sun. Today, to believe that the past is unalterable. He might be alone and holding that belief, and if alone, then a lunatic. But what? But the thought of him being a lunatic did not greatly trouble him. It was the horror that he might be also be wrong. He picked up the children's history book and looked at the portrait of Big Brother, which formed its front space. A hypnotic eyes gazed through his own, and was through some force with pressing down upon you, something that penetrated the inside of your skull, battering against your brain, frightening you out of your beliefs, persuading you almost to deny the evidence of your senses. In the end, the party would announce that two and two made five, and you would have to believe it. It was inevitable that they should make that claim sooner or later. It was inevitable that they should make that claim sooner or later. The logic of their position demanded it. Not merely the valid, 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 not merely the validity. Wow. Sorry, y'all. I have, I'm not used to reading. Um, and I'm leaving all of this stuff in because I think it's important for you guys to, to know that this is still hard for me. And um, uh, so I enjoy every single one of you uh, that listen to me. Um, uh, I, I, so thank you for listening to this poor dyslexic storyteller. Not merely the validity of experience, but also the existence of external reality that was tactilely denied by their philosophy. The, the heresy of heresies was common sense. What was terrifying was not that they would kill you for thinking otherwise, but that they might be right. For after all, how do we know that two and two make four? 
or that the force of gravity works, so that the, or that the past is unchangeable. If both the past and the external world exist only in the mind, if the mind itself is controllable, then what? Oh no, his courage seemed to suddenly stiffen at his own accord. The face of O'Brien, not called up by any obvious association, had floated into his mind. He knew more than certainty than before that O'Brien was on his side. He was writing the diary for O'Brien, to O'Brien. It was an interminable letter which, which one would never read, but it was addressed to a particular person who took its color from that fact. The party told you to reject evidence of your eyes and your ears. It was their final, most essential command. His heart sank as he thought of the enormous power arrayed against him, the ease of which any party intellectual would overthrow him in a debate, the subtle arguments which he had he would not have the subtle arguments which he would not be able to understand, much less answer. And yet he was in the right. They were wrong, and he was right. The obvious and the silly, the truth had got has got to be defended. Truisms are true. Hold on to that. The solid world exists. The laws do not change. Stones are hard. Water is wet. Objects unsupported fall towards the earth's center. And within that feeling, he was speaking to O'Brien, and he also was settling forth an important axiom. He wrote, Freedom is the freedom to say. Two plus two makes four. That is granted. All else follows. All right, so I'm going to uh, do a little extra bit in here about uh, the author of 1984. This man is interesting. I didn't realize, you know, you when you're in high school and you're, you're reading these books, and you're like, oh, my God, I have to read another chapter of 1984, Jesus Christ. You don't realize that these books have amazing meaning and um, there are reasons that we read them. Um, not only are they written by, uh, they're written with knowledge and, and, and ideas. I speak a lot of knowledge and ideas because these things are important. Um, there's a quote and when we get to it in the book, uh, which I believe is pretty soon. It is, m I think, my favorite literary quote of all time. Um, so when that pops up, I will, uh, I will uh, tell you guys. Uh, you might already know what it is. Um, so, so the authors of these of these books are not are are almost as interesting as their books themselves. And uh, George Orwell is, is one of them. So I found an article here, um, and it is seven facts about George Orwell. Um, it is on biography.com. So, and uh, it was written by uh, Sarah Kelter. 
So uh, his real name is Eric Blair. Uh, as a child, Orwell actually wanted to become an author, uh, but he intended to publish as E.A. Blair, not his birth name. Eric Blair, he did not feel, was the name suitable for that of a writer. Um, but when his first book came out, Down and Out in Paris and London, a complete pseudonym was necessary. He felt his family wouldn't appreciate the public knowing that their Eton educated son worked as a dishwasher and lived as a tramp. So Orwell provided his publishers with a potential list of pseudonyms. In addition to George Orwell, which was his preference, other choices were P.T.S. Burnham, or I'm sorry, P.S. Burnham, Kenneth Miles, and H. Lewis Always. So if you're curious, leave a uh, Tweet me what you think. Uh, what George Orwell would, if if he wasn't going to be George Orwell, which of course is the best choice, which one of these do you think he would be? Um, let's see. He was spied on during the Spanish Civil War, so he not only wrote about surveillance and state surveillance, um, but he experienced it. Uh, the Soviet Union had um, an undercover agent spying on Orwell and other leftists while they were fighting the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s. The Sp uh, secret police, which, uh, the in, uh, oop, hold on, secret police in Spain seized the diaries of Orwell had made while in the country and passed them to the NKVD, which was the preceptor to the KGB. And they uh, kept his own government, kept track of Orwell. Uh, and this began in 1929 when he volunteered for a left-wing publication in France. Um, the police also paid attention to Orwell when he visited the coal miners in 1936 while gathering information for the road to Widgeon Pier. And in 1942, a police sergeant reported to MI5 that Orwell had advanced communist views and dressed in a bohemian fashion at both office and in his leisure hours. Fortunately, the MI5 case officer actually knew Orwell's work and that he did not hold the Communist Party, nor was he with them. Um, he had difficulties publishing Animal Farm, which is his other uh, well-known book. Um, it was a, a book, uh, the, um, an allegorical look of the human, of the Russian Revolution and its aftermath. Despite the book quality, in 1944, Orwell encountered trouble while trying to get it published. They seemed to, some didn't seem to understand it. T.S. Eliot, the director of Faber and Faber, noticed your, fi your pigs are far more intelligent than the other animals and therefore are more quali best qualified to run the farm. Uh, Victor Gonzalez, who published much of Orwell's earlier work, was loath to criticize the Soviet Union and, and uh, Joseph Stalin. Um, publisher Jonathan Cape 
almost took the book, but the Ministry of Information advised against antagonizing the Soviet Union, an ally in World War II. However, the official gave his warning, gave this warning, was later discovered to be a Soviet spy. With rejections accumulating, Orwell even considered self-publishing before Animal Farm was accepted by Frederick Warburg Small Press. The success that followed the book's 1945 release probably had some publishers regretting their earlier refusals. I like this one. Ernest Hemingway gave him a gun. <laughs> During the Spanish Civil War, Stalinists turned on Podum, the left-wing group Orwell fought with. This led to Podum members being arrested and tortured and even killed. So a gun would pro provide him pro uh, protection, but as a civilian, Orwell couldn't easily acquire one, so he, he turned to an Ernest, uh, Ernest Hemingway. Uh, he visited Hemingway at the Ritz, explained his fears, and Hemingway who admired Orwell's writing, handed over Colt 32. It is unknown if Orwell had ever used the weapon. That is one of my most favorite facts, I think, is that Ernest Hemingway <clears throat> gave Orwell a gun. And I like this one, too. He was friends with Aldous Huxley. Um... They met at uh, Eton, where Huxley taught French, and his students would make took advantage and mocked of Huxley's poor eyesight. Orwell, though, took stood up for him and enjoyed having Ux Huxley as a teacher. Orwell and Huxley took to each other's reading each other's famous work, writing in *Time and Tide* in 1940. Orwell called *Brave New World* a good caricature of hedonist utopia, but said it had no relation to actual future, which he envisioned as something more like the Spanish Inquisition. In 1949, Huxley sent Orwell a letter on his take on 1984. Though he admired it, he felt the lust for power could just can be just as completely satisfied by select, uh, by suggesting police into loving their servitude by flogging and kicking them into obedience. <laughs> he would send he sent governments lists of people uh, he thought were communist sympathizers. And uh, let's see, I think this is number seven. Number seven, he died from tuberculosis. When tuberculosis, his he was he got it in the forties. A cure, a cure existed. The antibiotic streptomycin, which had been on the market in America since nineteen forty six, but it wasn't readily available post war in uh, Great Britain. So, given his connections and success, though he was able to obtain the drug in nineteen forty eight, but experienced a severe allergic reaction hair falling out, disintegrating nails, painful throat ulcers, among other symptoms. His doctors, new to the drug, didn't know a lower dose pro probably could have saved him without the horrible side effects. Instead, Orwell ceased treatment. The remainder was given to two other TB patients, 
who recovered. He died of streptomycin in 1949, but still couldn't tolerate it. Orwell succumbed to TB on January 21st, 1950. So, there's um seven facts on Aldous, or not Aldous Huxley, different book. Uh, we'll read that later. Um, on George Orwell. Um, the man was fascinating. He's, he's almost as fascinating as, uh, Ray Bradbury. Um, uh, Ray Bradbury, I think, is, uh, has written some of my favorite books. Um, and, um, but anyway, there is a little extra for you guys. Um, you can go to biography.com and, um, get some more information. Uh, I think there's another article in here I might, I might, uh, pull up because that was interesting too. It had an interesting little factoid. So, all right. So we're going to go back to the reading now. We got, um... See. All right. See you in a second. Chapter Eight. From somewhere, the bottom of the passage. Smell of roasting coffee. Real coffee not victory coffee, came floating out into the street. Winston paused involuntarily. Perhaps two seconds, he was back in the half-forgotten world of his childhood, when a door banged, seeming to cut off the smell abruptly, as though it had been a sound. He walked several kilometers over the pavements. His varicose ulcer was throbbing. This was the second time in three weeks that he had missed an evening at the community center. Rash act, since you could be certain that a number of your attendances at the center were carefully checked. In a principal, a party member had no spare time, was never alone except in bed. It was assumed that if he was not working, eating, or sleeping, he was taking part in some sort of communal recreations to do anything that suggested the taste for solitude. Even to go for a walk by yourself was always slightly dangerous. There was a word for it in Newspeak. Own life. It was called, meaning individual individualism and eccentric... Eccentricity. <laughs> I got it. Eccentricity. Thank you again, readers, for bearing with me. I'm not editing any of this shit out. But this evening, as he came out of the ministry in the balminess of the April air that tempted him, the sky was warmer blue than he had ever seen it that year, and suddenly, the long, noisy evening at the center, the boring, exhausting games, the lectures, the creaking commodity oiled by gin, 
seemed intolerable. On impulse, he had turned away from the bus stop and wandered through the labyrinth of London. First south, then east, north again, losing himself along unknown streets and hardly bothering in which direction he was going. If there is hope, he had written in his, in his diary, it lies in the pearls. The world's kept coming back to him. A statement of mystical truth and palpable absurdity. He was he was somewhere in the vague brown-colored slums of the north and south, of the north and east, that he'd once been St. Pancreas Station, walking up a cobbled street up, up walking up walking. He was walking up a cobbled street of little two-story houses with battered doorways which gave straight on to pavement, which were somehow curiously suggestive of rat holes. There were puddles of filthy water in them and among the cobbles. In and out of the dark doorways, down the narrow alleyways that branched off onto either side, people swarming. In astonishing numbers, girls in full bloom with crudely lipstick mouths and youths that chased other girls, and swollen, waddling women who showed you what the girls would be like in ten years' time. And the old bent creatures shuffling along on splayed feet and ragged, barefooted children who played in the puddles and scattered them at angry yells from their mothers. Perhaps a quarter of the windows of the street were broken and boarded up. Most of the people paid no attention to Winston. A few eyed him with some sort of guarded curiosity. Two monstrous women with brick-red forearms folded across their aprons were standing outside a doorway. Winston caught scraps of conversation as he approached. Yeah, I say to him, it's all very well, I says. But if you hadn't been in my place and done the same as I'd done, it easy to criticize, I say. But it ain't got the same any problems I got. Ah, said the other. Just it. It just is what it is. The stride voices stopped abruptly. The women studied him in hostile silence as he went past. But it was not hostility exactly. It was just a mere kind of wariness, momentarily stiffening as the passing of some unfamiliar animal. The blue overalls of the party could not be a common sight in a street like this. Indeed, it was unwise to be seen in such places, unless you had definite business there. The patrols might stop you if they happened to run into you. May I see your papers, comrade? What are you doing here? What time did you leave for work? It's a sure usual way home, and so forth, and so forth. Not that there was any rule against walking home by an unusual route, but it was enough to draw attention to you if the thought police heard of it. Suddenly, the whole street was in commotion. There were yells and warning from all sides. People were shooting into the doorways like rabbits. The young, the young women leapt out of doorways a little ahead of Winston grabbed a tiny child playing in a puddle, whipped a rapin around it, and swept back inside again, all in one movement. At the same instant, a man in a concertina-like black suit 
had emerged from the side alley, ran towards Winston, pointing excitedly at the sky. Steamer, he yelled. Look up, Governor. Bear of a head. Lay of a quick. Steamer. Steamer was nicknamed for what some, for some reason the pearls applied to rocket bombs. Winston promptly flung himself on his face. The pearls were nearly always right when they gave you this kind of warning. They seemed to possess that kind of instinct, which told them several seconds in advance when a rocket was coming, although the rocket supposedly traveled faster than sound. Winston clasped his forearms about his head, and there was a roar that seemed to make the pavement heave. A shower of light objects pattered onto his back. When he stood up, he found that he was covered in the fragments of glass from the nearest window. He walked on. The bomb had demolished a group of houses 200 meters in the street. A plume of black smoke hung in the sky, and below a cloud of plaster dust in which a crowd was already forming round the ruins. There was a little pile of plaster lying in the middle of pavement ahead of him, and in the middle of it he could see a bright red streak. When he got up, he saw it was the human hand severed at the wrist. Apart from the bloody stump, the hand was completely whitened to assemble a plaster cast. He kicked the thing in the gutter, and then, to avoid the crowd, he turned down a side street to the right. Within three, four minutes, he was out of the area with the bomb, which the bomb affected, and the sword swarming life of the streets was going on as though nothing had happened. It was nearly twenty hours, and the drinking shops, pearls frequent, called pubs. I love that. I go to a pub. Or as we Americans call it, a dive bar. That's what, that's what, uh, uh, so anyone who comes to America, you want to go to a dive bar. That's where all the locals hang out, and that's where you'll get the best information, just so you know. I'm giving you a secret. Just like probably the same thing about pubs in England and Ireland, Scotland. Sorry. Side note, dive bars, that's where you want to go. We have one here, it's called the Recovery Room, or as the locals know it, Rec Room. Uh, shout out to Boston. Um, I believe he listens, actually. Boston owns the Rec Room in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Um, we sell the most PBR in the world. We are number one in something. Go Charleston. Yep, PBR. Paps Blue Ribbon. Cheapest beer you can find. <laughs> it's fantastic. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm actually really excited to be recording again. I don't think you guys understand. When I say I was in the hospital, I was in the psych ward. Um, and this is, I'm sorry, I'm going to break into the story a little bit. Um... I uh, I had an incident and then it it became uh, a medication issue and I uh, had to go into the hospital, the psych ward, because the medication was 
basically putting me into kidney failure. Now this is your this is usually an annual event. Like it gets to be I've explained it to a lot of people as a sauna on the sun in the ninth circle of hell. Or the eighth circle of hell, because the ninth is actually full of ice, but whatever. Semantics. Um and if you don't keep it, I take a, a fairly high dose of, of this medication, and if you don't get on top of it, the you need to stay hydrated, and if you don't stay on top of it, it actually can build up in your kidneys and cause kidney failure. So I had to spend about a week in, um, in the psych ward because they had to take me completely off of it, and I don't react well. I get really suicidal um, when um, I'm off lithium. It's for uh, bipolar. And so um, this is the first time I've gotten to record in over a week. And I'm really happy to record. And I'm really happy to be talking to you guys. And I'm really happy actually to, to be here. Um, it was it was touching over there for a couple of days, um, not because of my kidneys, but because of um, the suicidal uh, ideations and thoughts, and um, so. But I'm here and I'm alive and I'm still reading for you guys. So, um, just kind of bear with me in into these interruptions into this reading because I miss it. I missed it for so for that whole week I miss being able to talk to you guys. Um all right, so pubs, dive bars, Boston, what's up? Okay. The pearls frequently pubs they called them. They were choked with customers. From the grimy swing doors, endlessly opening and shutting, came forth the smell of urine, sawdust, and sour beer. And the angle formed by a projecting house front, the three men were standing very close together. The middle one was holding a folded newspaper, to which the other two were studying over his shoulder. Even before he was near enough to make out the expression on their faces, Winston could see the absorption in every line of their bodies. It was obviously something serious, piece of news they were reading. He was a few paces away when he sudden, the group suddenly broke up and two of the men were in a violent altercation. For a moment, they seemed to be almost blows. Can't you bleeding, bleeding well listen to what I got to say? I tell you, no number ending in seven ain't one for overnight fourteen months. Yeah, ass then. No, it's not. Come back a minute, a whole lot of them. Over two years, wrote down a piece of paper. Take it down as regular as the clock. And I tell you, no number ending in seven. Yeah, seven as one. I was pretty near to tell you that that bleeding number. Four. Oh, seven, it ended in. It was February. 
Second week in February. February, your grandmother, all I've got down is black and white. Ain't tell you no number. Uh, I'll pack it in then. This is the third man. They were talking about the lottery. Winston looked back to where he had gone 30 meters. They were still arguing with vivid, passionate faces. The lottery, with its weekly payout of enormous prizes, was one public event in which the polls paid serious attention. It was probable that some, that there were some millions of proles for whom the lottery was the principal, if not reason, for remaining alive. It was their delight, their folly, their antinoan, their intellect stimulant. Where the lottery was concerned, even people who could barely read or write seemed capable of intricate calculations and staggering feats of memory. It, there was a whole tribe of men who made a living simply by selling systems, forecasts, and lucky amulets. Winston had nothing to do with running the lottery, which was managed by the Ministry of Plenty. But he was aware, indeed everyone in the party was aware, that those prizes were largely imaginary. Only small sums were, pay were actually paid out, the winners of the big prizes being non-existent persons. In the absence of any real intercommunication between the part of Ocean and another, this is not difficult to arrange. But if there's hope, it lay in the prose. You had to cling on to that. When he put it into words, it sounded reasonable. When he looked at the human beings passing you on the pavement, that became an act of faith. The street in which he had turned ran downhill, and he had a feeling that he had been in the neighborhood been in this neighborhood before. That was not the main thoroughfare, not far away. He had a feeling that he had been in this neighborhood before and that there was a main thoroughfare not far away. From somewhere ahead came a din of shouting voices. A street took a sharp turn and ended in a flight of steps that led down into a sunken alley where a few stallkeepers were selling tired-looking vegetables. At this moment, Winston remembered where he was. He led into the main street. Down the next turning, not five minutes away, was the junk shop. He had bought the blank book from which was now his diary. In a small stationer's shop, not far away, he had bought his pen holder and his bottle of ink. He paused for a moment on the steps, the opposite side of the alley where there was a dingy little pub where windows appeared frosted over but in reality were merely covered in dust. A very old man, bent but active, with white mustaches that bristled forward like those of a prawn, pushed open the, pushed open the swing door and went in. As Winston stood watching, it occurred to him that that old man, who must be eighty at least, had already been middle-aged when the revolution happened, and he and a few others were the last links of that now existed in the vanished world of capitalism. 
In the party itself, there were not many people left whose ideas had formed before the revolution. The older generation had been wiped out in the great purges of the 50s and 60s. The few who survived had long ago been terrified into complete intellectual surrender. If there was anyone still alive, you could get a truthful account of conditions in the early part of the century. It would only be a prowl. Suddenly, the passage from the history book that he had copied into his diary came back into Winston's mind. A lunatic impulse took hold of him. He would go into the pub. He would scrape acquaintance with that old man and question him. He would say to him, Tell me what it was like when you were a boy. Was it like in, what was it like in those days? Were things better than they are now? Or are they worse? Hurriedly, lest he should have time become frightened, he descended the steps and crossed in their street. It was madness, of course. As usual, there was no definite no definite rule against talking to proles and frequently in their pubs, but it was far too unusual an action to pass unnoticed. If patrols appeared, he might plead an attack of faintness, but it wouldn't be likely that they'd believe him. He pushed open the door, and a hideous, cheesy smell of sour beer hit him in the face. As he entered, the din of voice dropped about half its volume. Behind his back, he could feel everyone eyeing his blue overalls. A game of darts that was going on at the other end of the room interrupted him for perhaps about 30 seconds. The old man who had followed was standing at the bar, having some sort of altercation with the barman, a large, stout, hook-nosed young man with enormous forearms, a knot of others standing around with glasses in their hands watching the scene. Art civil enough, didn't I? said the old man, straightening up his shoulders pugnantly. You ain't telling me you got a pint of mug in this old bleeding bluzer? What in hell's name is a pint? said the barman, leaning forward with the tips of his fingers on the counter. Ark at him! Calls himself a barman, doesn't even know what a pint is. Well, pint, half quart, four quarts to a gallon, have I got to teach you the ABCs next? Ain't never heard of him, said the barman shortly. Leader, half leader, that's what we serve. There's your glasses on the shelf in front of you. I likes a pint, persisted the old man. You draw me a pint off easy enough. We haven't had these bleeding leaders when I was a young man. When you were a young man, we were all living in the treetop, said the barman, but glanced at the other customers. There was a shadow after. Okay, are y'all noticing that my accent is coming out? Jesus fucking Christ. I can't believe it. Anyway, sorry, I keep talking to y'all. I need to read the book. There was a short, a shout of laughter. An uneasiness caused by Winston's entry seemed to disappear. The old man's white, stubbled face flushed pink. He turned away, muttering to himself, and bumped into Winston. Winston called him by the, gently by the arm. 
May I offer you a drink, he said. You're a gent, said the other, straightening his shoulder up. He appeared not to have noticed Winston's blue overalls. A pint, he said aggressively to a barman. Pint of wallop. The barman swished two half liters of dark brown beer into the thick glasses which they rinsed in a bucket under the counter. Beer was the only drink you could get in Pearl pubs. The Pearls are not supposed to get gin, although in practice they get a hold of it easily enough. The game of darts was in full swing again, and a lot of men at the bar talking about the lottery. Winston's presence was forgotten at the moment. There was a, there was a deal under, there was a deal table under the table. There was a deal table under the window where he and the old man could talk without fear or being overheard. It was horribly dangerous. But at any rate, there was no telescreen in the room, and at any point, should, and a point was a point he made sure of as soon as he came in. Eek, drop me up a pint," grumbled the old man as he settled down behind the glass. "If half liter ain't enough, I don't satisfy, and a old liter, too much. It starts my bladder running." let alone the price. You must have seen great changes since you were a young man, Winston said. The old man's blue eyes moved from the dartboard to the bar, to the gent door at the gents, and as though the barman had... The old man's blue, pale eyes moved from the dartboard to the bar, from the bar to the door of the gents, and as though they were in the bar room as he expected the changes to have occurred. Beer was better, he said finally, and cheaper. When I call when I was a young man, mild beer wallet, we used to call it, it was four pence a pint. That was before the war, of course. Which war was that? said Winston. It's all the wars, the old man said vaguely. He looked up, up, he looked, he took up his glasses and his shoulders straightened. Air wishing you the best of health. He leaned, his lean throat, in his lean throat, the sharp, sharp point in Adam's apple made a surprisingly rapid up and down movement and the beer vanished. Winston got back to the bar and came back with two more half liters. The man disappeared. The old man appeared to have forgotten his prejudice against drinking a full liter. You are very much older than I am, said Winston. You must have been a grown man before I was born. Can you remember what it was like in the days before the revolution? Before people of my age don't really know anything about those times. We can only read them about in the books, and what they say in the books ain't true. Wow, my southern came out. We can only read about them in books, and it, and it, what it says in the books may not be true. I should like your opinion on that. The history books say that the life before the re revolution was completely different than it is. 
what it is now. There was most terrible oppression, injustice, poverty, worse than you could ever imagine. Here in London, a great mass of people never had enough to eat from birth to death. Half of them didn't have boots on their feet. They worked 12 hours a day. They left school at nine. They slept 10 in a room. And the same time, there were very few people, only a few thousand capitalists, what they called, who were rich and powerful. They owned everything that was ever to own. They lived in great gorgeous houses with 30 servants. They rode in motor cars and four horse carriages. They drank champagne. They wore top hats. The man brightened suddenly. All right, guys, that's where we're going to quit tonight. Um, thank you for putting up with my, uh, my, my breaks, my, uh, breaks of concentration in the book. Um, I appreciate all of you. I'm glad you listened. Um, tell more people about it. So this is the storyteller. She's signing off. And we'll see you on the flip side.